give everyone in the group a sense of agency and ownership while keeping the team focused on a common goal? How do I manage a group when my emotions feel unmanageable in the moment? How do we create and maintain a group culture which encourages members to assume good intent and shared purpose regardless of position and title? How do we formulate healthy habits around facing uncomfortable yet necessary conversation? How do I lead without controlling? These are just a few of the important questions submitted by teachers that Carla Silver will talk about today on The Curiosity Files, the podcast designed to build the capacity to ask meaningful questions in service to students and educators. I'm Shel Wabrek at Love It, a K-12 school in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Derek Ryan from Tabor Academy, a 9 through 12 boarding and day school in Marion, Massachusetts. And I'm Kate Turnbull from Metairie Park Country Day, a pre-K-12 school in Metairie, Louisiana. We started this podcast when our faculty was separated because of the outbreak of coronavirus. The goal was to continue to feed an intellectually hungry faculty and to find unique ways to gather as a community around topics that supported our core values. Our conversations with big picture thinkers in the field of education and beyond strives to activate a transformative future for thinking and learning. This is file number 10. Carla Silver, hello! Hi everyone! We're so glad you're with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. I hope that I can add some value. We are going to get started. Kate, take it away. Carla is the Executive Director and Co-Founder of Leadership and Design which is guided by their core values of building capacity, creating conversations, and making connections. Carla and her team design meaningful learning experiences for teachers, leaders, and learners at all level that model teaching and learning for the 21st century. They help participants learn and practice the habits, mindsets, skill sets, and behaviors of intentional leaders, entrepreneurs, designers, innovators, and creatives. Through this work, they build the capacity of schools and, or and organizations to transform themselves in collaborative ways in order to be nimble and adaptable in times of rapid change. Carla has partnered with schools on strategic design and enhancing the work of leadership teams and boards and designs interactive learning experiences for leaders at schools in all points of their careers. She also leads workshops for faculty, administrative teams, and boards on design thinking, futurist thinking, collaboration, and group life. It goes without saying that Derek, Shell, and I are excited to share our love of Carla Silver with you today. With each experience I've had with Carla, I've walked away with leadership training and skills and made connections and friendships with educators all over the country, like all of you. I find your experiences to be refreshing and thoughtful and engaging, and it will always leave feeling energized and ready to take on the world. I hope that that is your experience today as Carla discusses group work through task maintenance and the waterline model. Carla, one of the things yeah. we always do is we give our guests a superhero name. This is such a Carla Silver thing. I can't wait to hear it. No, no, we, we actually totally stole it from you. What are you giving me? Okay. Are you giving me a superhero name? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, we're not, you don't actually get anything. You just get the name. When you first said it, you, you were like, we give away. I was like, I get a car or something really <laughs> yeah. good. You get a car <laughs> and you get a car and you get a car. No, you get a name. We have named you Carla Electric. George Carlin said, electricity is really just organized lightning. And that is extremely apropos when we think about the role you've played in each of our lives. You've ignited us, you've illuminated, you've engaged us, you're interested in the ways that the wires make light bulbs come on. The Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan said, electricity does not centralize, but decentralizes. With electricity, we extend our central nervous systems globally instantly interrelating every human experience. And as you look at the faces that you see here, I hope you see that interconnectedness that you've really created for us. So thank you. I am so grateful and I'm so honored and I love my name. I'm so excited to take it and run with it today, literally run with it and hope that it gets us to the end of our panel discussion today. We are so excited to dive in with you to talk about the waterline model, about task and maintenance, and how those concepts impact group life. Managing group life. By the way, group life extends from your very own family, which may be the group that you're most concerned about right now. It could be the team you're working on. It could be that if you're coming at it as a, as a teacher, 
It's about how about managing the group life of your students. So it really could be any group that you're sort of curious about. And I just want to remind you kind of of the context of the moment that we are here together. It's such an interesting time. And I know that all of you are managing incredible challenge when it comes to everything from COVID-19 to what feels like an incredible inflection point around civil rights in this country and also around an upcoming election that is without a doubt one of the more polarizing elections to date. We're also, I think because of COVID-19 more than ever before, really coming to a moment of reckoning around the fact that we are in a global innovation economy and many of the ways that we have structured school over many years and, and, and really a century of um, a little over a century of compulsory education may not be what we actually need in this moment in time. All these things feel like they're coming in a confluence uh, of events. And what we are doing right now is we are saying, okay, how can we make sure that next year's schedule and, and how can we reopen school next year? And how can we spend as much time as possible thinking about the logistics of next year? And it's because it feels really, really, really comfortable to dive into task. <laughs> it is a great comforting. It is like eating comfort food. It's like, let's just focus on task. And so today what we're gonna talk a little bit about the fact that task without maintenance um, doesn't actually get you very far in groups and in life. I'll be sharing a little bit about task maintenance and sort of where it comes from, which is something called the waterline model. And I'm going to spend just one second talking, uh, one minute talking about leadership and design. Kate did such a nice job of teeing it up. But you know, once again, we are a nonprofit organization. We primarily work with schools. We say that we design experiences for the people who create the future of teaching and learning. We do three things, build capacity, create conversation and make connections. And I hope even today, we'll have a little bit of an opportunity to do all three of those things. We have five core values, people, collaboration, action, transformation, and joy. And we really do try to bake those things into all of the experiences we do with schools and even organizations outside of schools. And sometimes those are experiences that are open enrollment programs. And sometimes those are work actually in school. So all of those things are true. That's a little bit about LNG. So we're gonna be talking a little bit about group life and all of the messiness of group life. There is something wonderful about working in groups and teams, as you all know, and you probably in some ways really miss the face-to-face -face experience of being with your team. Um, you might even be appreciating your team a little bit more, just given that you haven't had a chance to be in person with them. Or you might be finding that in a remote setting, working with your team and with your students, it just feels harder and more awkward. Both things may be true also at the same time. Um, we don't need to always have these, you know, these polar opposite experiences. We can have both and. Group life is complicated because as you know, as humans, we seek group life. We wanna be involved in groups. But it also means that when we are in groups, there's something that we have to give up of ourselves to be part of that group. So there's always this paradox when you're talking about group life. Group life is messy. It will always be messy. And the truth is that there's this paradox of group life, this desire to be in a group, and then also pushing away from the group that can never be resolved. It can only be managed and tolerated. Um, and so that's just something to think about whenever you're working in a group. When you find yourself challenged by being in a group, you know, that is normal and that's healthy. And that is something that everyone experiences. No one ever promised that group life was going to be easy. And so when you show up for a team experience, one of the first things you say is, gosh, I hope I got a great team. And the truth is you got a great team and you also didn't get a great team. It's both band, right? You got a team <laughs> and it's gonna have some wonderful moments and it's gonna have some hard moments, but how can you really push through some of those moments of conflict? And that's really kind of what we're talking about today when we're talking about task and maintenance and the waterline model. So first of all, really quickly, you know, groups are always working in one of two modes. 
task is the first one. And task is everything that a group does to make progress towards an external goal. Generally speaking, groups convene because they have a task to accomplish. I mean, that goes for everything from your book group <laughs> to your family. Maybe as a family, as parents, you like your task is to get raise your children and get them out of the house. We always have a task that we're working towards in a group. Very rarely are groups just brought together to do nothing. There's usually some purpose. As tasks, we are working to make progress towards that goal, and that often is our checklist of everything we need to do. And groups are great about checklists. And really, if you think about it from a car metaphor, it is really about how do you get from point A to point B. And your car is the way you get there. So if you think about task as the car driving, that is one mode that we work in. You're trying to get from A to B. But the other mode that groups need to work on and work in is maintenance. The car metaphor is really helpful when you think about maintenance because almost everyone on this car has probably, call has probably owned a car or at least been with someone who owned a car and you know what happens when that maintenance light goes on. Well, at least for me, I ignore it for as long as I possibly can because I never have time because I got to get places, right? And so then when that maintenance light is on too long, my car eventually is going to break down. The truth is, is that all of us also know that if we do preventative maintenance and regular routine maintenance, that light is gonna not go on as often. And then when it does go on and we fix it, our car is gonna last longer, it's going to drive better. If we ignore it long enough, we may actually get to a place where our car is, is irreparable, where we can't fix it or we're fixing it is much more cumbersome and expensive. So groups need, just like a car, ongoing maintenance. Now, this whole framework that leadership and design really adopts, and we like really try to live this work of group task and maintenance, comes from this model called the waterline model. It is really a model that addresses what happens in groups when there is conflict and where conflict actually really stems from. So when groups are working together and they are working at that task level, and you can imagine this in any group that you've work, been working on, including things that happen in your own families, which are our original groups, is that you're moving along on task and you get stuck or there is a conflict. It is by nature our default to immediately identify the human at the root of this conflict. And we often blame someone. Someone didn't do something. Someone did something. Someone's not working well with others. And that's why we are having this conflict as a group. So we go straight to the personal. But the truth is, is that most conflicts in groups really stem from what I would say are these first two buckets around structure, which are kind of goals and roles, and then also group dynamics and development. And so if we back up and really identify where most group challenges come from, they're not coming from an individual who's just behaving badly. They're usually coming from a place where roles are not well-defined, where someone has not been very clear on what decision needs to be made and how that decision is going to be made. Sometimes it doesn't even come from a shared sense of mission and purpose around that group. Sometimes it's an unclear about the problem that's actually trying to be solved. So when someone is misbehaving, it's oftentimes because they are not clear on these other pieces. It's not their behavior, it's just how these, un, these things that are unclear are manifesting. And we then scapegoat that person because it's super easy to do that, right? And it's just like, oh, let's just blame, let's just blame Shell. So, um, so the, the waterline model simply suggests that we have to dip below the waterline. We have to get past task, dip below the waterline, and then identify where that maintenance needs to happen. Does it need to happen? at the group level? Does it need to happen at the structural level? 
sometimes it does get to the point where there is conflict between two people, but oftentimes that's once again, unclarity about roles, goals, and also sort of decision-making, and also what I would say is sort of norms of a group, okay? So that's the waterline model, and that's, that's where all this language around task and maintenance comes from. So at Leadership and Design, we've actually really tried to break task and maintenance down into something a little bit more tangible and for groups to really recognize how to use maintenance in their groups to move there, to get unstuck. And actually, sometimes task is really about a task that I have to do in order to move the group forward. And sometimes it's a task that the group needs to attend to collectively. And then sometimes maintenance is something that I can do for myself to be more productive and to really maintain the health of the group. And sometimes the maintenance is something that school groups need to, to really work on together. And I would say that if you're a classroom teacher watching this, this is just as relevant for students and for them to understand when, they, when you are putting them in groups that these are things that they need to attend to as well. And actually almost every student age can understand this if you take it down to a junior version too. I mean, I think students in lower elementary can really understand task and maintenance. It may not be exactly that vocabulary, but it can be shared in sort of different vocabulary. And also recognizing that sometimes it's something you have to do for yourself, and sometimes it's something that you have to do for the group that you're working in. But if you are a classroom teacher and you're working with kids, this is really helpful framework when you are putting students in groups. Instead of just saying, well, work together, helping them to clarify roles and goals, to really understand their purpose, and then to think about how when they experience conflict, which often comes as, I have to do it all myself, why am I always the one who has to do it all? Like how to help that student to recognize what structures are in place that's leading to that. Or why Johnny isn't showing up and doing any of his work or why little Susie is slacking off, right? It could be that Susie doesn't feel like her, she has anything to contribute to that group and no one has given her that role. So that's just something to think about, whether you're working with a group of department chairs or you're working with their leadership team or whether you're working with a group of students, this framework is really helpful. So leadership and design actually created a set of, of collaboration cards that really are all about task and maintenance. Shell probably has 50 decks of these in her, in her office. She probably hands them out like Tic Tacs. I don't know. Um, Kate, I don't know. You probably have a good collection. I know Derek has a few sets. But really, the reason I'm showing this to you is that a lot of times when we talk about maintenance uh, activities, a lot of groups will say, oh, oh, that leadership and design group, their idea of maintenance is, you know, really having fun and doing some improv games. And, and that is true. We like to do some of that because play is part of doing some group maintenance. I just wanted to share a few examples, and then we're going to kind of break down a little bit more about some task and maintenance and kind of how it shows up in group. You know, these are some examples of what a task card might look like. When you're coming together um, and doing work, how do you move a task forward as a group? Well, here's one tip. Instead of sitting around talking about it, everyone go out, prototype something, and bring it back and share your idea, right? Because a lot of times what happens when tasks get stuck is that people just sort of keep conversing about it. And you know, in schools, we love to talk to think. So send everyone out, have the, every single person build out their idea and then come back and talk about it. See where the conversation actually really needs to happen. Because sometimes you might come, all come back with the exact same idea. Sometimes you come back and all the ideas are really different. And sometimes you come back and there's a lot of similarities and then you can focus on the things that are different instead of rehashing the whole conversation. Here's a task one that I particularly like. Suck it up. Have a conversation with, us, with yourself about whether you're really pulling your weight. Sometimes it's because you need to work harder. So sometimes in a group, when a group gets stuck, maybe it is me. Maybe I'm part of the problem. What am I doing to contribute to not getting the task done? Some maintenance converse, uh, maintenance is often about like, are you actually ensuring that everyone 
is being heard and that everyone is actually part of a conversation. And it's very easy in groups to lose track of that. Finding out who is being heard and who isn't. And you can actually assign someone a role in a group to be the person who keeps track of how many people are talking and who's talking and who's not. And really trying to make sure that people who aren't stepping up and voicing, that, you, that you're giving them that opportunity or you're understanding why they might not be sharing. And when it comes to maintenance and me, making your feelings and thoughts known about your experience in a group might be something that's an example of kind of a maintenance and me behavior. Like if I'm sitting quietly and I'm not sharing, then in some ways I'm actually contributing to getting stuck. When you're feeling stuck and what's going on to just sort of sift through them to wonder if maybe I missed something. And the one I actually just happened to land on is uh, maintenance and me and I'm bugging myself. And the, <laughs> and the idea is sometimes you are the problem. Not every, <laughs> not every conflict is created by others. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, we can kind of see where some of those things fit on the waterline model. Like that's definitely more of a personal. But then the question is when you even ask yourself that question, is that, well, maybe I'm not clear on rules and goals. Maybe I'm not clear on the purpose. Maybe I'm not clear on the problem we're actually trying to solve. And that's when you can go back and do the maintenance and say, oh, well, wait a second. I'm not clear on the problem we're trying to solve. So that's where you can sort of say, am I the problem or do I need to back it up? Or is it that I am not clear on group structure and group dynamic? So actually what we're going to do really quickly is we're actually going to have an opportunity to sort of practice a little bit of this just pull out a piece of paper. If you have one, a post-it note is great. And what I just want you to do is just draw the shape of your team right now. What is the shape your team is in? And I'm just gonna let you kind of think about that, but just take two minutes. And by the way, for those of you who are uncomfortable with drawing, this is for you. And if you are a classroom teacher, you might interpret that as your department. You might actually interpret that as, you know, how you felt the last days of your, of your classes went, or maybe another group that you're involved in. This is really just about practicing, taking something that feels very concrete and making it a little bit more abstract, or maybe it's something that feels abstract and making it concrete by putting it into a drawing. So just take a minute. Okay. The next question you just want to ask yourself is when you look at that post-it note, is that shape really what you want it to be? I know that when I actually think about right now, just the team that I'm working in, I can think about some things that I would already want to change about the shape of my team, even though like we spend a lot of time thinking about task and maintenance, you know, all teams, every single one is going to have conflict even when you work on it, every single one. And so now the question is, what can I do? What is the kind of maintenance that you think you might do right now to get your team back into that optimal shape? Is there some intervention that you can do? Asking yourself this regularly, not just once a year, actually can help you get to the maintenance you need more immediately. Well, if you do this once a year, it's probably not going to work. But if you do this every week and you just say, what's the shape my team is in right now? What's the intervention I probably need to get them to a better place or to get them into the shape that I want them to be in? Then you're going to find that down the line, things don't get quite as out of whack as they, they can. One thing that I think is really valuable as you look at task and maintenance is that maintenance isn't just the job of the person designated as the team leader. And so as Not you at all. your roles in those teams, how are you contributing to the maintenance of that group life? And so I think that's an important piece as you look at your teams. Yep. You want to always make space. And in, like right now is huge. My husband, who is a head of school the other day, I was talking to Shell on the phone, actually. She can attest to this. He sometimes mocks everything that I do because that's like his job, right? He's my husband. So he was, I thought he was mocking me and I was talking to Shell about maintenance and I was like, yeah, well, in the end, it's really all about maintenance. And he was like, yeah, it's all about maintenance. And I thought he was just kind of being a little bit sarcastic over my shoulder. And then he's like, no, 
in this moment, he's like, it is really all about maintenance. He's like, we keep thinking that all this stuff that we're doing about reopening schools, about tasks. And he's like, no, this is really about helping people to also manage their feelings and to separate out their feelings and their thoughts, which sometimes can get really convoluted in a moment like this. And there are a lot of things that are happening in this world that are really making us feel very discombobulated emotionally. And so helping your team to make sense of their own emotions and separating out what they're feeling from what they're thinking is a huge part of what you can do right now around everything that's been happening with COVID-19 and certainly what has been happening around race and equity and justice issues in our country right now. And what we'll be having to do all the way through probably the end of this calendar year with what's coming up with the presidential election and other elections as well. Carla, you something really important that is central to so much of what L&D does. Uh, you talked about separating out feelings and thoughts. And one question that I know you've asked me a lot, Ryan will say to me in conversations is, is that what you think or is that what you feel? Will you, will you talk just a little bit more about that and why that's an important framework, especially when you're working in a group? Absolutely. There are four food groups of, of feelings, right? There's happy, sad, mad, and scared. And then shame is sometimes a fifth one. When you ask someone, say, how do you feel about our reopening plans? And they'll say, well, I feel like we should really, instead of going to school every day, we should take Wednesdays off and, and not be there. That's, that's actually not a feeling. That's a thought. When you say, what do you feel about it? Well, I feel really sad that we are not going to be back in person next year. Or I feel really mad that we're having to spend all this time doing that, doing all this planning. It feels like a waste. Like, that's a feeling. A thought is something else, right? Feeling is really being in touch with your emotion. And I will say we spend very little time thinking about how we feel about anything, but you know what, our emotions are gonna show up whether we think about them or whether we don't. And there's a great book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim, Jim Detmer. I love this book. And he really talks about being able to lead above the line, which is being able to lead with a posture of curiosity, being able to lead with a posture of being more interested in being accurate and then there's leading below the line, which is leading from a place of fear, oftentimes leading from a place of wanting to be right as opposed to being accurate. And the truth is, is we cannot get above the line unless we actually can identify how we're feeling. And I would say that groups are working either above the line or they're working below the line. And we have all worked, first of all, we, have all, we are all often below the line. No one can be above the line all the time. Please do not think that the goal of that is to always be above the line, but is to recognize whether you are above or below the line. And then if you are below the line, what do you need to do to potentially move yourself above the line? Or you're getting more curious or you're not feeling like the goal of this work is for me, my idea to be right. And okay. the value of this shared language, especially among teams, is that someone's working on that group can say, can really say, are we above the line or below the line right now? And what does the group need? And that kind of vulnerability in a group is essential to ensuring a positive and healthy group life. Yep. Absolutely. The truth is the mo the number one reason that teams fail is maintenance. It's just a lack of maintenance. And you got to keep in mind that in education in particular, we really undervalue those feelings. We over value thinking. We undervalue feelings, team spirit, and just the value of being together and, and how to maintain a team. And I will say just a note is that, you, you know, many of you are working in remote settings and it's just amplified in that remote setting. Okay. So just a couple of examples of maintenance. When you're thinking about maintenance, there's kind of two different things. There's diagnosing what's going on and then there's fixing. We have tons of ways that we think about diagnosing a team and how they're feeling at any given moment. But some really simple ones are things like fist of five, which is just to say to people on your team, especially if you're in a remote setting, you can do this in the chat box, but you can do this visually as well. Ask people on a scale of zero to five when they show up at a meeting, 
you know, how emotionally fit do they feel at that moment? Or how much energy are they bringing to the meeting at that time? With like a five being like, God, you can give me any problem. You can, you can give me any task and I'm there. With the fist being like, you are lucky I'm here. I'm a shell of a person. I have nothing to give. And it is not meant to then be an opportunity for everyone, if a person shows up with a one or a zero, for everyone to jump on that person and, and diagnose them and what's going on, what's happening. It's instead a recognition that we all live in these worlds. We live, we have lots of other things going on in our life. That zero could be anything from, I didn't sleep well last night. I didn't, um, I haven't had a chance to go to the bathroom before this meeting, so I'm having a really hard time. It's not that this person is like in emotional distress. But it does say like, hey, does anyone need anything from this group for them to be more present, more participatory? Is there anything that anyone wants to say? And it's just like taking the temperature of the group. Same thing with ratings, ratings questions. You know, you might be working on a task in a group and you might be getting to the end of the meeting and a great ratings question to ask or a type of rating question might be, all right, well, how close to finishing this task are we on a scale of one to eight it's amazing how people will be like we're at a seven and someone else is like i'm at a three we're at a three in terms of finishing this task but these kinds of things help to sort of say where does the conversation need to happen or what's the conversation we need to have Right, and so anytime you offer a ratings question, it's very helpful because if you find that everyone is aligned on it, then you may be like, great, we don't have to discuss this. But if one or two people are way far off, it might say, well, what makes you think that we're only at a three in terms of completeness? Both of those are quick, easy check-ons as well in a meeting where you're attempting to move forward in task. Lots of times people are talking and there's disagreement coming. People are saying things and they're not really saying why they're saying them. Mm -hmm. So if you can stop and do a quick check-in just like this one, it happens yep. fast and it then gives way to conversation. So people really are saying the why underneath all the words that are spewing out of their mouths. Yeah, and the other thing I like about these kinds of questions, Shell, is that if you say everyone needs to answer them, it does give you a chance to check in on some people who might be not responding or not participating. Because if someone who's not participating says, well, I think we're, I think we're at a seven or I think we're at a two, you know, then you can drill into that a little bit more and you get to hear other people's voices as well. You know, one of the things that we often find with groups is that in the, in the end, a lot of the maintenance work that we often do with groups is helping them to get to know each other a little bit better. And the fix that fixes most problems is actually getting to know one another better. So other types of maintenance experiences might be something like one that we use with most groups, which is just sharing your superpowers and your kryptonites. Your superpower being the thing that when you come to a group is your signature way of being in a group and it really helps a group to move forward. It's like, what is your superpower? Maybe you're a great synthesizer. Maybe you're a great listener. Maybe you're a great baker and you bring the best cookies. How do you contribute to group life? A kryptonite is not your weakness. Your kryptonite is the behavior that shows up in a group for you that makes you want to be in another group. It's the behavior that often drains your superpower. If I'm the energizer, or as I often like to say about myself, I'm the possibilian. I love possibilities. The devil's advocate for me is really the kryptonite. It makes me just want to just pop when someone says, well, we could never do that. Let me, let me be devil's advocate for just a minute. I, I, let me just tell you, like, that's the thing that makes me just lose my mind. So it's not my weakness, but is what drains my ability to think in possibilities. The other kinds of maintenance is that we like to call our kind of press box questions, which is kind of those meta questions that you need to ask in a group that sometimes is what's really holding you up. These often speak right to the structure of things. So, you know, wait, how are we making this decision? Who's making this decision? How are we going to distribute this work? Sometimes I get to the point where I'm like, okay, we've got a lot of stuff to do. Who's actually going to do it? A question that we often ask groups is, do you actually care about this problem that you're solving? Is it the right problem to solve? And then do we have the energy to do this well? So those are the types of questions, but they really are asking you to look at the group 
almost from the balcony, we call it the balcony and the dance floor sometimes too, being able to get above the group and actually almost look down at it and say, what do we need to actually do to make this work? One of those pieces about maintenance that's so crucial and led to the conversation you and I were having on the phone with Mark joining us um, across the room <laughs> was that very often groups will say, we've got to get this stuff done. Why are we playing all these games? You've got to be kidding me. We're going to do one more improv game. And that if you can take the time on the front end to do the maintenance work, people are far more inclined to give one another the benefit of the doubt as conflicts arise. And it actually allows you to approach task in a much healthier way. For sure. Having some play, and we'll talk about that in a second, is an important part of group life. And groups that play together, both you know, doing some of those sort of goofy games, but play is not always like playing the way we often think about it. Play is getting into a place of, of flow and, and, and getting to a place in your group where you don't feel like it's work because you're really in, in kind of this good generative space. Sometimes it's also about like maintenance activities or just really making sure you're clear on how you're going to actually work together. So we gave you some Zoom norms. We always share norms. But if you're working with a group that doesn't have a set of norms, then sometimes it can be really confusing about kind of the protocol that you're going to use. So having norms, but then more importantly, making sure they're norms and not just rules, that they're normed they are used and that you're holding each other accountable to those norms can be really, really helpful. And you know, it's interesting, like just this month, I brought on a new employee and then also um, an intern and we haven't had time. And I know this is a terrible thing to say. See, even groups like leadership and design, we haven't had time to actually reset our norms. It happens all the time. And anytime a new person comes into the group, you have to re renorm right? You have to readjust because culture changes with every person who comes in. I mean, you have a good organizational culture and then a person comes into that team and how do you really help them to be part of that culture, but also how does the culture shift with a little bit with every individual? So often we look at those norms and we're not really clear about what we're agreeing to. So again, right. that's a great question to ask as you start to establish norms with your class, with your group, to be really mm -hmm. clear about, so trust, for example, is a norm that lots of people are going to say. And for us to get really clear about, so if trust is a norm, what am I agreeing to? It's a great question as you're norming. Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, and so this kind of speaks to this idea of play and ritual, which is if you're working on task and you never lighten the load, task becomes really burdensome and cumbersome. So it's important to find ways to not necessarily not take the work seriously, but to enjoy, to keep the enjoyment of doing the work. Because really when people talk about burnout, it's because they've sort of stopped enjoying the work. It's not that there's too much work. You know, you might start thinking about in your groups, how do you maintain a sense of play and lightness and not fatigue about tasks? Um, how do you mark beginnings and endings? How do you celebrate success in your group? If you are not celebrating the wins and marking them, and every group has wins, then I mean, that, that really does lead to burn, that feeling of burnout and heaviness. So how do you stop and say, wow, we really did that well? And then also, how do you unpack failure? You know, it's like, how do you post-mortem things that don't work? So there's some things in the system that we can do better so that we don't continue to make the same mistake. Cause that's another reason that burnout happens is that you continue to make the same mistake over and over again. So there's a great book actually, which I have right here called rituals at work. It really does talk about the importance of rituals in your groups that allow you to make meaning for your group that give you that sense of higher purpose that, focus people at the beginning of meetings that close meetings at the end and mark the end of a meeting. And so what kinds of rituals can you actually design? Think about the fact that all of you have meetings, all of you have classes that you attend. So how can you close your next meeting 
in a way that really marks closure? What could be a ritual? And you might think instead about opening your meeting, but I actually think we do better on opening meetings generally, and sometimes we're not as good about closing meetings. I would say that as you think about collaborating remotely, you know, you can take these same things and also think, add one more layer, which is to think about how do you do task and maintenance in both synchronous and asynchronous ways. And I think if you're really creative, you can think a lot about how asynchronous maintenance happens in your team. Can you give a concrete example of a ritual someone might adopt to end a meeting? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so we work with an organization, it's called Jump Associates, and this is gonna sound really, really goofy, but they are a company that works with major corporations. Like we're talking like, you know, Target, Harley Davidson, and they're, they're a strategic design firm. And when they are holding a meeting of their team and they're working with their groups, their teams, they really try to use sound and body cues to mark the ends of points of their agenda. So those of you who have been around leadership and design long enough have known at least about the WABAM, which comes directly from Jump Associate. It is literally meant that when they are working on an agenda in their team, when they feel like that's sort of the end of that particular conversation, they mark it and they just say, okay, everyone, are we done with that agenda item? Okay, great. Let's wah-bam. Wah-bam. And they wah-bam it out. And what it means is it marks the end of the conversation about that topic. And it's like, we are not going to go back to that topic in this meeting. That's no longer available. So that's a ritual that they use. And they actually have other things like signs of the day that they use and things like that to open meetings. It is like a marker and it is a way for them to sort of say, hey, let's not go back and continue to have a conversation about that. At least for now, we're, we're, we're done with that, right? So in terms of other types of rituals, how do you welcome new people to your team? Do you just hand them a employee handbook and say, welcome, it's great to have you. Or is there something that you ritualistically do? Google X team, they have a ritual that we sometimes use with our fellows. We do it at the end of the, of the fellows convening, which is the failure altar. And once a year, you know, that team brings their worst failure of the year and they talk about it and they put it out and they build a representation of that and they put it on the altar. And what happens there is not for them to then burn it they're not burning the the altar they're sort of saying let's put it up there and what do we what did we learn from that particular failure so those are those are kinds of rituals at wonder women for example very often at the closing of the day the idea of giving everyone a post-it note and writing one it's your yeah. exit ticket and so writing yeah. your current state on your post-it putting it on the wall speaking the word as you're as you're exiting in that room yeah Last week, I asked my team to pull out a post-it note and just draw a picture of the one goal for their week. You know, it's something really easy to do. Derek, Kate, you may remember when we were fellows, the very first design activity we did together as a group was trying to determine a lasting ritual for our cohort. And that becomes a really great activity for you to do with a class, to do with a team. So they're designing themselves. And we did some great empathy research, asking one another stories about a group that they felt incredibly connected to or a part of and from those stories we were able to design some rituals ourselves both elaborate and ridiculous so carla if this were a model that you were a member of a team and you felt was valuable to bring to a team what suggestions might you have just to help a team get started to get started with task and maintenance mm -hmm. yeah it feels really awkward at first, I think. And I think acknowledging that, that it's actually like a cultural shift. If you're not used to doing it, you know, you're gonna hear things like, this is a waste of time. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel vulnerable. There's no trust on this team. So I don't think we can do maintenance. And of course, that is the first sign that you really need to do maintenance. And it's the first sign that you really need to be very intentional about it. And I think one of the things that you said, Shell, is how do you distribute the, the responsibility to actually do the maintenance? 
Uh, it's not always the, the team leader or the designated team leader, whatever that may mean. Some of you may be working in teams that feel less hierarchical, um, but it really becomes everyone's responsibility. And so asking people to sign up to really think about giving people the role of being the maintenance person. And it doesn't have to be a fun activity at the beginning. It could just be, hey, can someone during this meeting be responsible for meta questions and asking about the health of the group as we work today? Can someone be responsible for making sure that all voices are being heard or that we are asking those people who aren't speaking up to share a little bit more? That's how I would get started. I would say, let's, let's really dig into this. Let's see what this is all about. Let's do it. And I wonder too about the maintenance and the maintenance for getting from point A to point B, depending on what the vehicle is. And, and I'm going to go back to these, to these cards. There's one in there. It's individually, write what you believe are the group's roles and goals, share, clarify, and move forward. And what I think is so interesting about that is what it will surface as to why people believe they are in a particular group, whether it's a department or even the larger group, the school, and really what they understand the roles to be, as opposed to that's just how we do it, right? The culture that, that is speaking from generations behind. And so I wonder about the role of maintenance being secondary to being clear on task. Does task need to come first? I do think that most people assemble for a purpose, but then I don't know that everyone always actually is aligned on what that purpose is, or there's a lot of variation. So asking that question at the beginning is a really great question because then you can see where there is alignment and where there is some divergence on that. And you can get clear on what that task really is. So I think that's a really good point and it's a great starting place for groups when they come together. It is like, what is the purpose of this gathering? What is the purpose of this meeting? What is the purpose of this group? Take it down to the book group level. I mean, how many of us are in book groups and like half the people there are actually there to read the book and half the people are there to actually drink wine and hang out and like chat. And I think where you see sometimes book groups get into tr trouble is like, some people are like, dude, I really want to come here and have a conversation about the book. And then I had this one person who never read the book and just always said, well, I didn't read this book, but let me tell you about, about a book I did read. And she was there really purely for the social engagement. And I'm not saying that there's not both, but she always felt herself out of sorts in that group. And it was because maybe we didn't sit down and say, okay, this book group is really for people who want to read the group, uh, read the book. <laughs> Anne is asking a really good question about people identifying themselves in groups. And I use an idea actually with my ninth grade English class that I'm fairly certain I stole from Ryan Burke in a fishbowl format. So four kids in the center of the room, the rest of the class around them. And I ask them to plan a celebration for when the end of the book. And so the kids have a really clear task. You four are planning our party for when we finish Catcher in the Rye. Everybody else is watching the way they interact. And as you push pause in certain moments, as you watch their planning, you can draw the kids' attention to the maintenance that's needed in that group and allows you in that fishbowl scenario to kind of pull apart that model in a way that is really helpful. Well, yeah, I and mean, that's a great way to get some meta feedback. Sometimes there's other variations of that. Um, you know how I mentioned like when you think about like you're stuck on a task, you're not sure to how, how to move forward and you have people prototype something and then come back with solutions. Well, one of the fun things to do is actually to have the person present their idea and then turn their back and then have everyone else discuss the idea without that person looking. And like they're talking about the idea and you're just listening. You're not, you're not able to give any kind of, well, I thought about that or whatever. You're just listening to them talk about your idea. It's a really fun way to actually move a task forward. And, and same thing with um, if you've got a problem or a challenge you're managing, you, you say the challenge and then you just let everyone else talk about your challenge <laughs> around you. Those are all sort of like similar. Well, Carla, we are getting near the end of our time with you, but we are so thankful for you making space for us today. Oh, sure. Well, it's great to be here. I hope I was able to share 
some nuggets of goodness. And once again, like I just think about even my husband, it's all about maintenance. And when you think about the kinds of things we're managing right now, it's just so easy to dive into the task. And it's not that task doesn't need to happen, but in the end, like what's the human experience we're trying to deliver for people next year? What is, what is really at the core of what we're trying to, to achieve? And it may be less about logistics than you think. It may be a little bit more about human emotion um, and how we want people to feel at the end of next year rather than necessarily what we want them to do. Just a little bit of meta maintenance. I think the final thing that I'm just going to say here is that L&D has got a number of things that are sort of on the runway for and, and ready for takeoff. And, and they really do align perfectly with what Carla's talking about as her mantra as a possibility. And first uh, is really directed for us as adults. Uh, and that's an unmastered program in thinking differently about the way that we, you know, ultimately, what experiences are we designing? How do we think about that in ways that perhaps we haven't come at it before? It's also something related to the election and how we create some structure around that for ourselves, but also for our students. If you are thinking about your own community and the maintenance that's going to be required throughout the election season this year, um, I really encourage you to check that stuff out. Um, it's, it's really supposed to be student-led, student-driven with a couple of faculty advisors, but I hope many of you will really think about how to approach election with that maintenance lens and not just do a, hey, let's do a class on the presidential election for 18 kids and, and call it a day. That's my very, very unritual closing. <laughs> that was fabulous. You know what? We could use a ritual. As everyone's leaving, will you just put one word in the chat? Just, just one word that's going to be your word for leaving, your exit ticket as you go. That's a great ritual. Mine is gratitude for all of you for coming. Inspired. You got a wah-bam there. Great words in this chat, Carla. I'm going to keep all of those. Thank you so much. Oh, you are so welcome. It's always a treat to see all of you. Mm -hmm.